0: You are listening to Yoga and Beyond, Episode 4, Interviews with Yoga, Anatomy, and Healthy Living Experts with me, Ariana Rabinovich. Today, my guest is Katie Bowman. Where do I start with Katie? I'm a huge fan of hers, and I learn a ton from her and incorporate so much of her work, a lot of her teachings, into the way I teach. And I started reading her blog, katiesays.com, about a year ago. And I was hooked right away because she has a a great way of making complex information very accessible and fun. She's a biomechanist, she teaches the biomechanics of. Natural Human Movement for Optimal Human Function, and she's the director of the Restorative Exercise Institute and the Aligned and Well Program, which you can learn more about at restorativeexercise.com. She's also the creator of the Aligned and Well DVD line, which showcases her restorative exercises and stretches. She has written two books, Every Woman's Guide to Foot Pain Relief. I love this book. It's the new science of healthy feet. And her second book is Alignment Matters. This is the one we'll be talking about, and it's the first five years of her blog, And it's organized into uh, chapters, and there's a great index so that you can search specific topics, things like active breathing exercises or even whiskers. This interview is great for movement educators and movement professionals with an anatomical background and also for people interested in learning more about the human body. I had some very specific questions for Katie after reading her book, and she was nice enough to go over some of those topics in more detail. Some of the things we talk about are movement versus fitness, the psoas, optimal gait patterns, pelvic floor disorder, biotinsegrity, just to name a few. And she also gives us a preview about her upcoming book, which is scheduled to come out in September of 2014. Katie, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about your book and everything. I think you do amazing work. The title of your book is Alignment Matters, and it's a compilation of the first five years of your blog, but you reorganized it into chapters. Um, for people hearing about you or the book or alignment for the first time, what is alignment, and why does it matter?
1: Um, well, I guess the most the most basic definition of alignment is it's the distribution of forces, um, in this case in your body. So that one part of your body doesn't wear out compensating for what another part is supposed to be doing. And I think that most people are probably comfortable thinking about alignment in terms of their car, right? Everyone Mm -hmm. is kind of like, okay, my car has to be aligned. Um, but I, I think that alignment is probably most often misused, um, to be, to replace the term posture. Like, like when you're getting your car aligned, your wheels are not being fixed in a particular position, right? Cause mm-hmm. you go, you turn your wheel and the wheels go everywhere that you want to go. It's, it's about the relationship of the wheels to each other it 's about the materials that make up the wheels being set at a particular at a particular relationship to the other parts of the car, but also to the way that you drive the car so the alignment of a car isn 't a um it isn't an absolute or fixed thing. It depends on how you're going to drive your car. So the alignment differs. I don't know if most people know this. Like I think you think you, when you take your car, it's just about getting your tires all straight. But the the way the mechanic is aligning your car depends on how you're driving it. So people who drive in the snow, people who drive race cars, people who drive on the road, like cement versus uh, four-wheel vehicles, all that alignment changes based on how you drive. So it's a very complex way of considering all of the forces that that car is going to be experiencing and what's the best way to organize the orientation of all of the parts to maximize performance so that the use of one part of the car doesn't wear out another part of the car prematurely. And so that, just apply all of that that I just said to the car, to the body, and that's what alignment is. And it matters because we're trying to optimize our human performance but i mean human performance a little bit different um differently than when people say i want to like run as fast as i can or i want to like win a fitness award i'm talking about performing biologically meaning that there are certain biological functions health health has become like i think a, a word to mean um uh, like not dying or not being sick, (laughs) but, but in biology, it's defined a little bit differently. It means that you're able to perform all of your biological tax tasks. So, um, you know, make a list of everything biologically that you need to do. Can you eat? Can you digest? Can you poop well? Can you do all those things without pain? Can you walk and you get up and down? Can you get pregnant? Can you deliver your baby vaginally? Like all of these things are what the human body, Um, should be doing biologically and when you have a failure in any of those arenas then you are not well Mm. and then you need to check your alignment okay the end
0: the end (laughs) the end (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so just to go back on that though are you saying that there isn't a universal alignment because you were saying that with the car it depends on how you're using it so are you saying depending on how you use your body that your alignment your optimal alignment might differ or did i totally go off on a wrong tangent there
1: well, I mean, I would say that if you're going to be a ballerina, yeah, the alignment of your parts yes. are going to be different than if you want to um, have your hips when you're fifty you know so yeah. so the term alignment, and I think the way we use it um colloquially, the term alignment means whatever sort of arrangement you need to do to create the forces to do whatever it is that you need to do. So I don't operate under the assumption that everyone wants to be biologically optimal. Many people, many people I think would prefer, uh, physical performance. I mean, athletes are, are, um, I guess giving up some of their biological function for physical performance. And there are many different, um, ways that are not just necessarily biological performance, it could be just you're living a sensory life and you you dig sensory input and and you can definitely sacrifice your biological existence for a whole other realm of existence but um,
0: hopefully.
1: Hopefully when I not yeah well I mean hopefully i can't, i mean can 't even say hopefully right because some people just it's really just, it's your ride. You can do whatever it is you want to do on your ride. Um, but I'd just like to state that this platform and what I'm teaching is the alignment for biological function.
0: Okay. In your book, you've talked about the body as a machine. And uh, when I hear that, I, it makes me hesitate. I have a hard time grasping the body as a machine. So I'd like to know how you see the body as a machine.
1: Well, that's interesting. How How do you define machine? How are you defining machine?
0: Um, something that's uh, mechanical and kind of robotic uh, that isn't fluid and uh, can't make decisions for itself and um, it functions one way or no way.
1: Hmm. Well, I would say that it, most of the things... When 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 we are when people are talking in this, and especially in the body world, people do talk quite a lot across different paradigms. But I think it's always best to start with definitions. How are you defining things? So for me, I use the term def- a machine in the most uh, literal sense, or, the, or I would say the most um, <laughs> the Oxford English Dictionary sense, which is it's just a complex structure that utilizes mechanical power, where every part has a definite function and a task to perform so your liver you know has the thing that it does and i don't know if you could say that the liver is fluid and that the the liver could assume the task of the hamstring or you know like <laughs> mm-hmm. every cell has an assigned role and um that's what i mean by machine it's not that mm-hmm. it is a it's not that it is robotic or soulless or heartless or any of those things. So I, I think a lot of times it's just the connotations that we internalize words. So for sure. if that makes it easier for you to see how I see it as a Yeah, machine. it does. As, there you go. <laughs>
0: as per, Yeah. Performing and, and built to do perform certain functions. That makes sense. But that kind of, I think, ties segues into um, a question that I had about biotensegrity versus biomechanics. Mm-hmm. And my my understanding of biotensegrity is limited, um, but I like to read about it. Um, I've read some articles about it on biotensegrity.com. And it's my understanding that um Stephen M. Levin kind of rejects linear physics in his interpretation of biomechanics and that the body can't be understood as levers and columns and it just doesn't work that way. So does biotensegrity butt heads with biomechanics? Or does is, you put it a really nice, simple way. Um, is physics wrong when it comes to the body?
1: Um, well, no, I would not say that physics is wrong, and nor does Dr. Levin. I, he, he doesn't say that physics is wrong. Um, what he's saying, and, and I'm not sure about the physics background of the people who are listening. Um, and I would say that probably the physics background of most people in general is pretty low. And so just I as put a side. myself
0: in that category.
1: Yeah, yeah, And it's really hard because as someone who does um, have an extensive science background, I don't think we've ever been at a time. This is a total um, <laughs> aside. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we've ever been at a time we, where we are asking people to use science in their decision-making and in their practice while not actually requiring them having any training in it so we have a lot of people trying to make sense of science and i i don't know how people make sense of i mean i when i write on my blog i'm writing a science blog but it's really like at the 6th grade level because most people's science background is at this 6th to 8th grade level mm-hmm. which is fine but i don't know how when i when i read ten stuff you know he's our bio ten those are very complex scientific principles. So I think that if you don't have a science background, <clears throat> that is physics wrong is a conclusion that you would come to. But let me let me try to simplify what it is that um, I Dr. Levin that. is yeah. saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Newtonian physics, all all physics, all science. I'll start with theories, right? You're presenting a theory, but a theory is a mathematical model. A theory is you're trying to predict through a mathematical, let's say, a series of equations or maybe just one equation, what the outcome would be if you didn't have to observe it. So you're trying to quantify nature. You're trying to understand how nature works and like what are the basic principles math reduced to a mathematical statement. And sometimes into a statement with words like we have the Newtonian laws like for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction those are words that sum up what what you can plug into to a mathematical equation that will in physics the the theory is that it holds true um, under certain conditions now I think people kind of elevate physics to mean like oh if it's a physical law that means it's always true like mm-hmm. gravity but but no physicist or no person with really good science training would ever um, say that, because all theories are set under; uh, they're all built on various assumptions, and they're validid, They're they're valid for a limited range of physical conditions. So biomechanics utilizes lots of rigid body models, um, which means you know you have to set things. As a lever. So, like, oh, what does the elbow joint do? It's like, okay, well, we're going to make the lower arm a lever and the upper arm a lever in our model. And then there's a hinge. And um, at the most basic level, a hinge is, you know, uh, frictionless, hinges very easily. But then as you get into more complex studies, um, then you have to add, well, it's, there, it, it does have a little bit of friction and it's not really one lever on the bottom, like you've got a radius and ulnar bone. So there's two levers on the bottom. So I just think that biomechanics and, and, and a lot of physics, when you're trying to apply it to biology has to be simplified because it's very, very complex. It's where you start your understanding. Mm. Um, I would say that most, most biomechanists, um, understand the limitations of a model. The problem is not the model. All models are wrong. The problem is knowing when there's a limitation to the model. So most scientists understand quite well the limitations of using rigid mechanics for the body. Mm -hmm. The people who don't seem to understand the limitations of the model are the people who are trying to utilize the model in practice. So Mm -hmm. there's lots of practitioners and lots of programs where people are teaching um, biomechanics who maybe have only had a little bit of biomechanical training. So they are themselves working off of the eighth grade model, what I call like in quotes, eighth grade model, which is really your bachelor's degree level of, um, studying biomechanics, you know, as you, as you keep studying biomechanics, as you keep studying anything at school, what comes after the next level kind of makes you have to reconsider what, Came before, so I wrote a blog post called "Orange Autopsy" mm-hmm. on I remember this. Remember that one. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like when you st- we all study anatomy. I mo- imagine that most of your listeners have taken anatomy or have certainly opened up an anatomy book. But what's in your anatomy book is like the super watered down mm-hmm. version to the point that it'd be kind of incorrect if you're trying to make a theory off of it or teach or make a practice off of it. So when you come to the next level, it's like, Oh, so I'll have to rearrange what I knew before. But that same thing, like that's what bio does is biotensegrity is, is the model that comes after the model that comes after the model. You have to study mm-hmm. quite more in depth to realize that what he, what he's saying is, that we cannot simplify um, the motions of the body and the loads experienced by the body with these really simple mathematical models because it isn't a a rigid lever. First of all, when you bend a bone, the bone bends. Mm -hmm. There's a certain amount of load that is eaten up by the bend of the bone. So those are still, like, biotensegrity is still using physical principles. It's just...
0: It's the next level of the
1: model. Yeah, the model okay. is just a little bit more. It's just more in depth. It's and not nuanced. saying it's wrong. Yeah. Well, yeah, and yeah. and like I, it's the same thing with um, you know Newton's laws, which are really applied to, to almost everything in our at the level at which we are operating, like stuff you can see with your eyes. When Einstein came out, he he just he set up the theory of relativity, which was, oh, here's where Newton's laws don't. Hold up. So that doesn't mean that Newton's laws were wrong. It means that Newton's laws don't apply to this to the to the situation that Einstein was able to set up. It's like here's where they fail. But we still use Newtonian laws to launch a space shuttle. So Mm -hmm. they're so you're not nothing is invalid. It's just when you broaden your parameters of setting something up, then yes. But for most people who work, I mean, unless you are a particle unless you're a cellular biomechanist, um, biotensegrity, it's just a, I mean, you're just having like a philosophical discussion. You're not, it's not anything that you're using in practice. And the one thing that I really don't care for either model, the reductionist to either biotensegrity or biomechanics, although I would say that biotensegrity is in the field of biomechanics. I mean, they're all the same thing. They're considering how do forces affect a tissue, right? Mm -hmm. Which is biotensegrity is tension and compression. So Mm -hmm. those are still Newtonian physics that you're looking at. Um,
0: Okay. Yeah. That that was helpful. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about movement versus fitness. And this is is something I love um, about your book, about your message in general. You've really helped me. You've changed the way I think about movement versus fitness. And I think I call you a paradigm shifter because of that. (laughs) Um,
1: what I'm trying to do here. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And, um, I, I get it and I, I try to apply it to my quote fitness, uh, routine, my movement routine. And when I try to explain it to friends, colleagues who are, let's just say, spinning three times a week and then sitting at a desk for the, re- the rest of the time throughout the week, if I try to explain to them that what they're doing isn't really helping them, it's not doing them much good, um, people start to feel defeated. Like, what what then are they supposed to do? You know, how, how do you get people to understand and to act on moving more naturally and with more variation, but without making them feel defeated about their you know, what their lifestyle choices are?
1: Well, I would say that I make a very conscious decision to, I, I, I don't ever go up to people or anyone and tell them that what they're doing <laughs> isn't doing them any good because one, that's not true. What they're doing mm-hmm. is doing them tremendous good. So I think that that's probably the first reason why people don't hear a new paradigm very well is when it's packaged in that way. Mm-hmm. What, what I do, and you know this because that's how you came to it, is I just put out lots of articles and books that explain the difference. And when someone is ready to hear the difference, when someone is embodying that they don't feel good yet, they are at the same time, quote, doing it right. You know, it's like, hey, I'm meeting my fitness guidelines. I'm stretching. I'm doing my aerobics. I'm Strength training, and yet I still have this surgery. I still take these number of pills per month. I like my, like things like getting my period knocked me out for a couple days. I have headaches. I have this disease or that disease. Eventually, um, if they're thinking critically, they will come to a conclusion that something isn't right, and then they will go looking for the information. But um, until then, it's very difficult to hear it. So I guess that's the first thing I do is I don't ever tell anyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I make it, I make the information available to them yeah, and uh, let that kind of organic um, process of you will seek when you are ready to understand how, how let it play out.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, pelvic floor health. Um, you cited a, an alarming statistic from, NIH from the National Institute of Health, that 80% of women will experience some sort of pelvic floor disorder. And Kegels are often thrown out there as the go-to solution for people experiencing pelvic floor disorder. And you basically knock that out of the water. So why why aren't Kegels the right solution all the time for PFD? And what might another solution be? Well, I think... Um
1: is, is any one thing always a solution for everything? I think, yeah. And I think that we've just gotten, I I have a, we have a lot of physical therapists who go through our training program and I was like, okay, tell me some of the contraindications for pelvic floor for doing a Kegel. And she was like, for Kegels, there's no contraindications. I mean, like who, who can't do a Kegel, who shouldn't be doing, everyone should be doing a Kegel all the time. And, and Hmm. she was just saying like from her, that perspective, that there's never any contraindications, which is um, really poor perspective because it's showing that we don't understand what movement actually does on the cellular level. That you can move without adapting to it, and um, we've got a huge problem of pelvic floor issues. I mean, even if you look at the statistics in men mm-hmm. and. And with pelvic floor issues, remember it's it's not just. I think people will put incontinence and prolapse into it, but sacral pain and um, tailbone pain, and for men, prostate issues, and for women, just even dysmenorrhea, painful menstruations, infertility, um, anything that happens in the pelvic area. Those numbers, you know, can get very very large very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, is is not recognizing the relationship of tension in that area and then not just tension but you talked about you know your friends who sit all day at work and then when they go for exercise sit on a bicycle for 3 hours mm-hmm. now you're looking at what is the environment what's the cellular environment of that of that area and we just have oversimplified pelvic problems into oh you have weakness if your if your pelvis isn't performing then you just better strengthen that puppy up and mm-hmm. do some reps <laughs> and it's just again it's just that it's just that eighth grade understanding of what's happening in your body it's just, it's not a very well developed um understanding of the body holistically the fact that the pelvis how the pelvis integrates or should be integrating in every sort of movement you do but we're we're at a we're at a disadvantage right now because almost all of the science regarding the human body is coming out from population that hardly moves their body. Mm. And they see that as the norm and have, and have set that as the norm. Americans um, are really, there's a really great article on Americans are not, are like the outliers of the humans across the population. And yet all of our understanding about cognition and psychology and physiology is coming from researching this population. And we're setting it up to be, this is how humans are. And it's like, this is how Mm. This is how um, the 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 weirdest of all of humans are. It's like it's like um, the, in the article it was about recalling a whole bunch of research that's been done in the last forty years on 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 the human mind, which is really the American mind. Mm. And it's like it's like thinking you're studying birds, and in fact you've been studying penguins, and everything that you learned about the penguin has been retroactively um, put on to. All birds everywhere, and we it 's a huge disadvantage, and so most of what comes out in terms of understanding the body is from that really skewed perspective mm-hmm. so the the deeper you go and and again it 's not i mean there are some sciences where the, this is a bigger issue um, I would say probably in the last ten years, the cultural perspective um, of science um, with respect to the body, you know when you 're studying planets it's pretty, like, you don't have as much of a cultural bias as when you're applying studying something biological. And so when you're studying something biological, that that slanted perspective has a greater impact on your conclusions. And so there's been a, I would say, in the last five to ten years, people are starting to say, oh, you know, we've been studying the foot and have all of this research on, on the foot, and here's how the foot should be and gait, and here's how walking goes down. It's like, oh, it turns out that that was the foot, that's always been inside a shoe, shoe. yeah. Right. So yeah. now everything, every and there's nothing in research that goes back to flag every article that you read. Going, oh, sorry. You know, we've been we've updated this, or this is no longer. It's peer. It was peer reviewed at one time, but it's not really a valid representation of the scientific body of work on that subject now. But people who use science don't really have that big of a science background to to know the process. So, you know, they're just pulling articles and going, see, this is research. Mm-hmm,
0: and it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, well... There's always um, context and some sort of bias to that yes. research, I guess. Yeah, Yes.
1: And <laughs> and also that scientists understand that this happens. I mean, it's mm-hmm. part of, part of just being a scientist is and human. always making it... Well, being a scientist is being a human scientist. Mm-hmm. So you understand that all science is done with assumptions of the scientist. And those are human assumptions and they're culturally effective. It's just we're not that great about putting them in the literature and it's starting to change now. And I would assume that 30 years from now we'll be even better. We were terrible at it in the 1800s mm-hmm. and we we're better at it in the 1980s and we'll be even better in the 2080s. And that's just how it goes.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, optimal gait. So I guess this will tie into what you're saying now. Um, I've, there are lots of different ideas and theories about what, how we should walk optimally. Um, you've said that the pelvis shouldn't twist in the gait cycle. Mm -hmm. And that's perplexing to me because, uh, I see the two pelvic halves as part of the appendicular skeleton. And I see, I can see how I can feel how in myself and most of my clients, how there is a little bit of a twist, um, and it's contralaterally, I guess, um, with the pelvis and the gait cycle. So can you talk more about that? Why shouldn't the pelvis twist?
1: Well, when I, the word twist, I'm defining it as a transverse rotation of the mm-hmm. pelvis. Mm-hmm. So if your pelvis is twisting as you're walking, what is the hinge of your walking?
0: Your lumbar spine, I guess.
1: Correct. Yeah. So what's the hip for?
0: So what's the hip for? right? Like there, yeah, for, yeah, you could
1: put, I mean, you could, I mean, you're saying the halves of the pelvis should be part of the appendicular mm-hmm. skeleton, but why shouldn't the trunk then following that logic? Why doesn't the whole body rotate around mm-hmm. an axis? Why would you even need a leg to push back? If, if your whole body rotates back, why would that be less optimal than just the leg hinging backward at the hip? And that's a question to you. Maybe mm-hmm. it's a rhetorical question for you mm-hmm. to think about, you know, yeah. when, you, when you run up against that is what does the action of hip extension give us? If, if you are making the hinge of walking um, a transverse, and just for people who, are, who don't know what this means, it means if you put your hands on your pelvis, when you take a step back with your right foot or take a step forward with your left foot, depending on how you think about it, the pelvis would rotate in the mm-hmm. direction of the foot that's going back, which means that your muscles that are moving you forward are located next to that place that you're rotating in your spine. So you would not be firing your gluteus in that case. You would be firing your spinal rotators as your mover. And if you if you look at leverage and the mass of muscles and the design of the joint, um, there is not… Um, a robusticity there that allows you to walk that way for a long period of time. You will end up wearing out the material between those um, vertebrae sooner than you would ever wear out uh, the the uh, articular surfaces of the hip. Um, and the reason we do walk that way is because you don't have the range of motion for hip extension.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And And it's not just pelvis twisting. Maybe your compensation for a lack of hip extension is lots of toe walking, or maybe it's excessively bending your knees. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's not rotating at the pelvis. Maybe it's just extending at the lumbar spine. I mean, you have to create some sort of backwards lever somehow. Mm-hmm. So if your hip does not articulate, then you will articulate something else. And that's the beauty of the human body is we are an excellent coping mechanism. Yeah. Um, it's just that the, the period of time in which you can cope depends on how much you are, in fact, coping. hmm
0: yeah, I find that fascinating, actually, that the body has these automatic repair systems in place, but it doesn't always know when the repair is done. So, it, you know, let's say it's a compensation pattern with, with how you walk after an injury, that the body doesn't go back to how you walked before the injury, and then you develop other um, stress injuries because of that new compensation. I just find that fun, fascinating. Yeah, and I
1: I think um, that it's helpful. I don't know if it's a repair. I mean, it's a it's um it certainly is a quarantine. <laughs> we certainly have a ability to quarantine an engine, an injured area, um, but it, it makes a lot of sense when you're considering that you come from your or your stuffs, your molecules come from a time and place in which. Not moving was not an option. You would die if you didn't move. Mm-hmm. So so the fact that you can get up and move quite a bit when you, quote, can't move or when part of you can't move, the fact that you can still go on is pretty great. But yes. that's not – it's not an optimal it – w- it would be an optimal – um, function of the human body in the context of you're going to die if you can't do this. It's more of a hindrance to health in a time and period in which movement is not required. It, it becomes something that is an ena- enabling. It's an enabling thing now, because mm. um, it, it allows us to continue to go on with the very same behaviors that resulted in the injury um, in a in a different and new and unique way to bring more tissues to the behavior. Because from the body's perspective it's it's really not um, adept at recognizing <laughs> behaviors that aren't harmful because why else would you be doing them? It's It, it associates everything you're doing as um, need to for survival. And I don't necessarily know that we're not all simply surviving. I think that we are all simply surviving. Um, it's just that when you can pan out from your own reality a little bit and going, oh, I can see that I can actually change what I thought I was doing to do something else that you have this great system in which you can actually restore your more, what I call your reflex driven programs. Mm
0: -hmm. So that's where the mind comes in, I guess. The
1: mind's always there. It never,
0: never never steps (laughs) out. Hopefully. Yeah. Uh, So as a lot of people like to talk about the so as and also in line with gate walking, you say the psoas is not a walking muscle. Why isn't the psoas a walking muscle?
1: Well, um, what makes a psoas a walking muscle? What What's your model of walking?
0: Um, well, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but uh, I've learned it as a hip flexor and that it initiates that motion of hip flexion as you're stepping forward. Or it's not, I shouldn't say it initiates it, but it's a... Uh, One of the prime movers of that action?
1: Yeah, so that comes with, um, well, that's it. So that's a twofold. So it all depends on how you're defining walking. So for you and for probably a lot of people, walking is something that if you were standing in place, like say you just everyone stood up and looked down in front of them and you were going to take a step if you're going to go walking, that you would initiate you're walking with hip flexion, meaning Mm -hmm. that you would lift a leg out in front of you and then fall. So your way of walking is controlled falling. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, I just did that that as you were talking.
1: Right, right. And that's how most people have come to walk. And that way of walking is because of your adaptation to hardly ever walking. And when you're not walking, spending most of your time sitting in hip flexion and knee flexion. So that that model of walking, which is – hip flex, fall, hip flex, fall, hip flex, fall, um, the psoas is absolutely a walking muscle in that context. Although not even really in that case. And, and when, I say, when you say what I've said, I always like to say, well, that's really what the literature is saying. Because for a long time, the hip flexor was linked. I mean, I'm sorry, the psoas was linked to the iliacus and both of them were considered mm-hmm. A hip flexor, but through more rigorous research and being able to EMG in isolation the psoas from the iliacus. What the psoas is spending most of its time doing and and what it should be structurally doing, keeping in mind that the psoas is a very, very long muscle and you've got two of them, one on each side with a total of 22 to 24 attachments between the two. So cool. <laughs> it's, it's very cool. But I mean, it's, it's like, it just got put into a category of hip flexor mm-hmm. because of it's one of its attachment points. Well, what about the other 20 that mm-hmm. attach to, uh, six different vertebrae, mm-hmm. the vertebral discs? Like what about mm-hmm. those? Yeah. The only it's just you know our current anatomy model is pretty poor in that you're learning um, you're learning a very specific um, insertion moving towards an origin and that's not really how muscle works. That's again that that would be more of your um, considering what a muscle does outside of all other forces. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know so. In isolation so is,
0: of everything else.
1: In like isolation it, of everything mm-hmm. else, which is not how it works. There right. is no what a one muscle does right. all of the time. It depends on what every other muscle is doing. It depends on the position of your whole body relative to the gravitational force. And it depends on, on your position, face up, face down. It, mm-hmm. it, like all those things affect it. But but what the psoas appears to do more readily is as you take – so i i had I explained the hip flexion model, but in in walking, if you were walking without all of your modern lifestyle baggage, let's say um if you were standing on two feet and you wanted to take a step forward, what you would need to do is get yourself onto one foot and then push that foot back behind you, so that's a controlled in this case, you're always holding your body, your body is never crashing towards the ground only to be prevented from crashing by throwing your other leg out in front of you. Mm-hmm. So if your hip extending, then your psoas has to lengthen in order for you to walk, not shorten. Mm-hmm. So the SOAS in response to that leg moving back is lengthening, while the psoas on the opposite side is we'll say it depends on the period of time in which you're looking, but let's say that it's it's acting more as a stabilizer to keep the vertebrae from rotating hmm. towards the leg that's trailing back behind you. So it is, it's offsetting in the same way that when you take a step forward, one of your legs goes back, and so does the opposite arm. It's called reciprocal arm swing, mm-hmm. rest. That arm swing going back is to offset the tendency for that leg going back to rotate you towards that side. So as you're stepping forward with your left foot, your right foot's behind you, there's a tendency for your whole body to rotate to the right in which the left arm going back is part of what helps you from twisting. So is the firing of your obliques. And so is firing of the opposite. So as all of those are piecing together, the leg is very heavy, right? The, Mm -hmm. you've got your whole leg, so it needs equal force production to balance it out, but it doesn't have a same shaped, same massed thing on the opposite side to throw back. So it does it by creating a whole, it, it 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 count it counter it creates the counter torque by using lots of smaller systems where the sum total is a balancing
0: effect. Hmm. I think I understood you. Sweet, <laughs> I really do. I'm really excited about that. <laughs> okay, uh, optimal skeletal muscle length. You you say that there's an optimal length, for, a specific length for muscle tissue, muscle fibers. How do you know? how does one find that optimal length?
1: Well, um, again, my definition of, uh, we have to make sure that we're talking about the same sort of length. I would say that most people again have that, um, earlier model of what length means in terms of like, we have a fixed muscle length that can be stretched longer or shorter by sarcomere overlap. But, um, the the whole other piece to that is when you are when you utilize a small range of motion so say for example your hip um from a standing position your femur which is your thigh bone should be able to to move back behind you about 30 degrees about you know give or take mm-hmm. um so you should have enough muscle length and let's i'm just going to throw a group on there on say the muscles that Flex your hip, so anything that attaches between your pelvis and your femur um, should allow it. It needs to have enough length to allow that hip extension. But if you don't extend your hip to 30 degrees, your body has consumed that mass. You no longer have the physical same amount of mass as you used to have if you did not use that range of motion. Mm -hmm. So when I say every muscle has a particular length, what I'm talking about is you should have the appropriate number of sarcomeres that allow your joint to move through its full range of motion. Um, not, and it's not like you can you can't just keep on stretching. You can't keep stretching indefinitely and add more mass. Every every joint has a physical limit of range of motion that the structure creates. But your the mass of your muscles should should match that to allow that full range of emotion to be able to express itself, I guess. Is. Mm-hmm. But in order to do that, you actually have to use those ranges of muscles all the time.
0: Those ranges of motion, yeah. Yes. So which is why that simple phrase, uh, use it or lose it, is so…
1: True. True.
0: <laughs> it applies there, yeah.
1: Yeah, you just – and you lose it. Um, mm-hmm. And then eventually – and it's not when you're losing mass on one side of the joint. You're gaining it on the other side, but mm. but that new arrangement – and I wrote another blog post. If anyone wants to see it, it's called, um, I think, Muscle Oversimplified. You can actually see a picture of what I mean of uh, sarcomerogenesis and sarcomerolysis, which is the the process of losing okay. or gaining sarcomeres in response. But – um
0: I'll I'll look it up and I'll include that um, with this posting. So that link will be available. Sure. I'll find it. Um, what are the two most common musculoskeletal malalignments or issues that you see at your institute, at the Restorative Exercise Institute or in your work?
1: In my in work. Um, in general, I would say it's rib shear, rib thrust, where the rib cage, if you put your hands, um, if you go down, follow your chest all the way down. If you can wrap your fingers underneath your ribs, it, if you can get your fingers underneath the front of your rib cage, then you are thrusting your ribs. Um, and it means that the rib cage in its entirety is not only anterior out in front of you, but it's also posteriorly rotated, which means the the lower half of it is out in front and the um, more superior part of the rib cage is back behind you. So it really is a posterior posterior rotation with a, with a simultaneous anterior translation or forward displacement. And again, that's that's the response of so much hip flexion and the psoas over time can just posteriorly rotate and translate the rib cage. And then also what I'll call a non-neutral pelvis. Um, there's, a, I think, when you pull out the pelvis and suspend it in isolation, you know, or like, look, is your pelvis anteriorly tilted or posteriorly tilted? Those terms are the pelvis relative to the ground. But more importantly is the position of the pelvis relative to the femur bone. So you can have um, a pelvis that is anteriorly, meaning forward tipped relative to the femur, while at the same time being posteriorly rotated to the ground. And that's... Hmm. So I just wrote that and that's another blog post called There is No Iliosoas. I remember that one. There's a picture of that. And so that's what that whole post was about, is that you can have both of those things at the same time. So I haven't met a person yet who doesn't have either a posteriorly tilted pelvis relative to the femur Mm -hmm. um, or a posteriorly tilted pelvis relative to the ground. Hmm. Which can also be it could also, when I say relative to the ground, you can still have an anterior pelvis relative to the femur. You could still feel like you're tipped forward, but you're doing some other compensation lower down, like you've got knee flexion or something else that's masking it. So a lot of people are like, well, I don't, I'm not a posterior tilter. I'm an anterior tilter. It's like, yes, but the type of tucking that I'm talking about is relative to the whole body and the ground. It's not one. Or it's not the just other. one or the other. It's not just okay. one or the other. You can have both. But but the bigger picture is the, that what makes that a problem is you can't extend your hip. In either mm-hmm. one of those cases, you can't extend your hip. So therefore, walking for you is not a hip extension driven thing. It's a hip flexion, far, forward falling, non-glute using, mm-hmm. pelvic floor weakening issue.
0: And rotation, excessive rotation. It, it, can, be, it can be whatever mm-hmm.
1: it, whatever compensation you have developed to compensate for the lack of hip extension, all those things that I mentioned earlier, there's a, that's kind of why um, we can all present differently and uniquely because it's, it's um, your compensations have a lot to do with your specific anthropometric dimensions. Everyone's got a um, anatomically unique situation going on, but at the same time, there are overlying principles that are the same for everybody. So anatomical vari- variability doesn't imply a wide range in biological function. You'll just, you'll end up coping, even though we're all missing the same thing, it'll affect us all a little bit differently. differently, but the solution is still the same. You have to restore your hip extension. You have to sit less. You have to walk more. You, there are still general markers that apply to
0: everyone. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite anatomy book do you have one
1: I do it's um uh, it's clinical anatomy made ridiculously simple
0: that sounds up my alley
1: right and it's it's really it's it's the whole body i mean it's I think it was a book written for doctors in medical school mm-hmm. um, so it really is um it's got everything there but it's all these cool cartoons and he did a really great job. I think from a biomechanical point of view, I mean, he's got things like the fascial seams of the body. You know, there are there are fascial grains of the skin. He's got all of that down there. He's through through really simple lines. I'm a big fan of. Um, I'm not a big fan of big giant arty arty a r t y artsy um, anatomy books because it doesn't. It, to me, it it's compounding the problem of not understanding how anything works. We've got a huge anatomically robust, um, population that works and teaches in anatomy. And I would say that the understanding of forces and how the anatomy works is really low compared to knowing the names and the locations of everything. Mm -hmm. We've, we've kind of hyper-focused on the detail and taught nothing of the principle behind the thing, which is my pet peeve in teaching in general. Mm -hmm. Um, that and the and clinical anatomy made ridiculously simple. I think that's what it is. I don't think it's stupid. I think it's simple.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, okay.
1: Clinical anatomy made ridiculously simple. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Um, he's really good at showing the the angle of direction. Like, here's your intercostals and. Here's the external, and here's how they go, and here's the internal. But what's even more interesting is you can see how the external intercostals, the fibers run exactly the same way as the external obliques. And the internal intercostals run in exactly the same um, plane of action as the internal obliques. So you begin to paint a more robust picture of how it's all working together and how – but how specifically you've got layers of muscle head to toe that respond to planes of action, not necessarily – thinking at how we do like, this is one muscle moving. It's like, yes, what if you're hanging from your arm? How is everything head to toe? How do you have all of those directional forces covered through this really cool integration of layers of muscle and fascia? And, and I just, I think that that book did a really good job for, um, for introducing that into your mind through it, the way it's presenting its pictures.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm going to look for that book and hopefully I'll Find a link and put a link on, on this post too. What's the best way for listeners to get your book, Alignment Matters, and to find out more about you?
1: Um, you can go to Katie Says.com, K-A-T-Y says.com, and that has a link to the bookstore. And also, I do believe that in my bookstore I've linked to the clinical anatomy book. Okay. It's on a list of my favorites. That's just it's the anatomy book that I recommend for most people. Um so you can get it there. You can also get it on Amazon com, And I, I would say that if you're just listening and you kind of want more that you can just go to the blog and start reading. I mean, yeah. there is seven years of posts and they are in no particular order and they can be at all different levels. The Katie says book, which was the, I mean, sorry, the alignment matters book, which is the first five years. That's kind of like the primer it's taking, I'm, I'm assuming I'm, I'm working on the assumption that, um, everyone's a lifelong student, because I'm a lifelong student. So I just write the blog for me. So the first five years, they're like the nuts and bolts in the more simple um, pieces presented. But what you'll notice in the blog subsequent to 2011, so everything in 2012 and 2013 and 2014, is starting to address this next level that um, you and I are talking about, which is let's start adding forces to our model and see how that changes how we talk about anatomy. Let's Mm -hmm. start, let's start making it a little bit more complex. So it really alignment matters really is the primer. It's like getting everyone kind of um, to have the same alignment speak and understanding that it is important. And then we'll start refining it. And I'll probably be refining it on com for the next 20 years. Mm -hmm. That's just be doing At at
0: least. Yes. That's what I love about being a lifelong student actually, is that your understanding evolves. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Sure. Are there any other projects or events that you'd like to mention?
1: Um, well, my what I've been spending all my time on um, is getting ready for my next book, which is called Move Your DNA.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that comes out this September. And I would say that Move Your DNA <clears throat> is, if I just said alignment was the primer for understanding um, the context of why a, one segment of your body's relationship to another segment of your your body is important. This move your DNA is a much broader primer of how your body relates to the natural world and how there's an alignment there between how you move and and disease. How you move relative to the environments in which you keep, which would be a home, the chairs, but even down to how are the, how are the cells of your body affected by um, looking at a computer all day mm. how How have you actually changed the shape of your cornea and require or don 't require glasses? What about um, the noises? what about the hum of your refrigerator? How do all of those things load your mechanosensors? So every single cell in your body almost has a mechanosensor that takes this environmental information and changes the shape of your body. So your body right now is the expression, the genetic expression of every load that you have created by how you have moved or how your environment has moved you and how to change it to be more what you would like it to be. If you would like it to be different.
0: That's silence that I'm experiencing right now is a good thing. I'm blown away.
1: <laughs> it's not just dead air.
0: It's not just dead air. Um, I can't wait to read your book, your next book. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's almost done. It's I'm almost on the final done? edits. Yeah. Okay. Very exciting. I look forward to it. And, uh, I appreciate the way that you break down that information in a way that a non-scientist like me can start to understand it. So, uh, So I guess mechanotransduction, I learned that word from you. Is that going to be in the book?
1: Yeah, it's all about mechanotransduction. Yeah, it's about, and the mechanome. So we've talked about the genome, but we talk about the genome because the mechanome is is too hard to quantify. So it's, again, it's about, it's going back to, we've kept our, our understanding about the body simple because it's really impossible to quantify. And so we keep talking about it. Simply, instead of being okay, it's been, it's been hard to quantify because we're talking about really teeny tiny things. Mm-hmm. And I say teeny tiny a lot because I'm in the cellular world right now. So, and I have a one year old and two year old. So, I just <laughs> every time I hear myself say, I'm like, stop <laughs> saying teeny tiny, and I can't. <laughs> but um, teeny tiny, you're talking about teeny tiny loads that are only now being able to be seen and measured um, because we've got better nanotechnology. So thanks to Richard Feynman for starting us down the path of nanotechnology. Um, understanding with, with uh, like a lot of the biotensegrity stuff is, you know, a load to your body, the whole body, whether you're just picking up a backpack and throwing it on your back is squishing or pulling all of the cells in your body, all of them. So you're just like, Hey, I just put a backpack on my body, but you just put on a trillion backpacks, every cell is now wearing that backpack but it's wearing it in a different way and every step you take is a metaphorical backpack every breath you take is a metaphorical backpack every sound you listen to every um i mean eventually i, I this is not going to be in this book but every thought you think is a backpack and so very quickly you go down the quantum tube mm. and i i'm not a i'm not a i'm not a very good philosopher um so I don't really address too much of the mind and thought stuff with that beyond the acknowledgement of yes, it's absolutely there and probably the most important thing, but I don't know if it's helpful I don't know if if um, the quantum movement in health is super helpful for people who who are like, yeah, I know I could spin my electrons into being better by my thoughts. Mm. But maybe the way you spin your electrons into better thoughts is choosing to get up out of your chair. Maybe it's, maybe it's more direct or maybe it needs to start being more direct because if you don't have any skill set in spinning your electrons into um, a more complete liver, um, maybe there is a way to, stress, to de-stress your liver filtration system by taking a walk so that you don't have – Oodles of stagnant lymph all over your body, and that if we stay in the concrete, if we stay in the mechanics, even though it's not the perfect model, that it it, it is a it's an it's a palpable model right now um, for the person who doesn't want to go become a monk and move out of their life. But there's a way to begin to move towards making yourself better on a cellular um, level without making it seem like. An esoteric. existential, yes, mm-hmm. an existential esoteric, unreasonable thing. I mean, you can change yourselves right now by turning your head to your left. Like that changed it, and and, and I that's that's just where did I am now. just did it. Awesome, you're different. <laughs> like, like I'm not even talking to you as you were. I'm talking to you right now as you are. And mm-hmm. so that's. I think that's what I'm going to probably spend the next twenty years, forty years of my life doing is helping people fill in the gap between this this like rigid way of looking at the body at the same time going, but it what we know, like all these thoughts and somatics are important. I want to bridge the gap between the two worlds. Mm. I want to translate between the two. We'll see how well I do.
0: So that's a movement movement.
1: It's the movement movement.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's the movement movement.
0: I'd love to be part of it. <laughs>
1: you already are. I thank am. you. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Katie, thank you so much for, Talking to me today and answering those very specific nitty-gritty questions. I I really enjoyed it and um, I hope to talk to you after you've written your next book. Absolutely. All right, thank you. Thanks, Ariana. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed that. You could find all the links that Katie mentioned on my website, arianayoga.com/slash Katie Bowman. If you like this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave a review for me. It's easy to do. Just go to my website, arianayoga.com slash review, and it will take you to the link that goes right to the iTunes page, and you can leave that review right there. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, be well.